You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. I'm Jeff Ranke, as always, joined by Anna Wells. But Anna, we had to go to the bullpen this week. We did. We, we found to, an Andy. We had to bring somebody in. David Manti is on vacation, so joining us in his place is Andy Zoll. Andy, thanks for jumping in. Of course. I'm uh, happy to be invited back. You're never, you're never sure after the first time. So Awesome. Good He's stuff. He's kind of a specialty guy. We'll see that play out later. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. As you all know, we are the editors for Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, or IEN.com, as well as DesignDevelopmentToday.com. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories impacting manufacturing, as well as the bigger picture effects they have on the industry moving forward. Before we get going, just want to remind you to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You can also help us a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. And finally, to email us, get in touch, give us some feedback. You can reach any of us at jeff at ien.com, anna at ien.com, or shockingly enough, andy at ien.com. We ask you to put email the podcast in the subject line. All right. So as we get going, and I'm going to warn everybody, it's a bit of a roller coaster with the stories this week. Uh, we're going to start out positive, and uh, well, you'll kind of see where it goes from there. So <laughs> it's very foreboding, Jeff. This, uh, the, the first story, uh, we're going to start with something positive. We talked about reshoring surging to a record high. The number of U.S. manufacturing jobs created by reshoring activities and foreign direct investment increased last year, hitting a total of over 160,000 new jobs. This is according to the Reshoring Initiative's 2020 data report. Of this total, 109,000 of those jobs were directly related to bringing jobs back to the U.S. from someplace offshore. It's the first time reshoring has outpaced foreign direct investment in seven years, and the reshoring initiative is anticipating 2021 totals to be even higher, possibly exceeding 200,000 new jobs. So, Andy, we'll shift over to you first. Some positive news coming out here. Uh, certainly. Um, this, uh, As long as I've been covering manufacturing, there's kind of been this debate over when the tipping point would be where companies would choose to shorten their their footprints and their supply chains versus you know chasing uh, lower labor costs, which they've been doing for decades. And um, the uh, pandemic kind of threw into short relief how, uh, how much of a benefit that could be. Um, just, you know, once the entire global economy shuts down and all your labor and parts are coming from wherever, then all of a sudden you're in a bit of a bind. Um, so... Uh, I uh, I can't say I'm surprised by this. Um, I will be curious uh, to see what happens going forward if people will, uh, as we start getting back to something approaching normal, whether we'll uh, heed the lessons of that or just kind of go back to where we were. Absolutely. You know, Anna, as people have reached out to us, two of the biggest trends right now, I think, in the industrial sector, one is supply chain, one is cybersecurity. We talk about supply chain reshoring always sort of enters the conversation. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, and obviously, this is exciting data. Um, I think I, I think Andy was kind of going down this path a little bit. Um, I, I kind of wonder if this is a lesson that gets lost a little bit once the immediate pinch kind of wears off. I mean, I know Reshoring Initiative's uh, outlook on the next year, they believe it's going to be even greater growth in this area. <clears throat> and I hope to see that. Um, you know, there were some industries that got burned really, really badly. Um, look at PPE. Look what happened with automotive. Um, I mean, look how many times 3M has had to file suit <laughs> for like knockoff products and, and you know, how many of those like masks and things were getting like 
bailed as they came in um, to the to the country because they were just complete junk. Um, I know some of those companies are going to take those lessons to heart. I wonder if others might move on more quickly um, now that their immediate focus is on handling some of this pent-up demand because you do see sometimes that those kind of long-term strategic initiatives get pushed aside during that time. Yeah. And right now, I think there's a lot of manufacturers that are dealing with a lot of really yeah. maybe more immediate things than trying to take a strategic look at their overall supply chain. So I don't know. Um, we'll see what happens. I, I read an interesting um, article in Forbes that was published last year that examined the issue of global supply chains, and it talked about how – anyway, one of the experts they interviewed for the story said that it wasn't a supply chain problem. It was a just-in-time problem and that that strategy yeah. was broken and this lack of inventory is the real problem. Um I think there's something to that. Uh, I don't know if I would say broken, but I would say like that's something that maybe as a companion to this issue needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and again, this is there's some positive stuff coming out of here. To be honest, one of the things that I thought about is how this potentially ties into the skills gap. It's great we're bringing these jobs back, right? We've got a lot of manufacturing right now in the U.S. that we cannot fill positions. For. Exactly. So if we've got two hundred thousand jobs coming back next year. I mean, what does that do to the skills gap? I totally agree. And that I also thought of that when I saw the story because we're so conditioned to think like jobs, 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 create yeah. as many jobs as we can. But like right now, we actually have too many jobs. So what are we going to do? I think like, you know, you talk about challenges to the manufacturing industry and, you know, who's the biggest um, problem in terms of outsourcing and who's taking all the jobs. Like I think right now the biggest problem facing manufacturers, as we've seen in recent months, is – the skills gap and, you know, perception problems. And I hate to say it, but in some cases, wages that people don't want to take because they're too low or they're not competitive. Um, those are some issues I think that need to be addressed maybe first before we just bag China and bag <laughs> India for every problem that we have, you know? No, I agree. It's, it's interesting when we talk about reshoring because I think people think back to when there was this massive move, you know, in the seventh, since roughly 1970, we're looking at a loss of between seven and a half and eight million manufacturing jobs. Now, not all of those went someplace else. Some of them were simply not needed anymore because of advancements in technology and automation. So Andy, when we look at that, we talk at this reshoring and skills gap issue kind of merging together, also impacting supply chain. How much is also automation and robotics kind of coming into play as well as places like even Mexico now too. Yeah, the 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 pandemic, of course, has also made uh, automation and being able to work from anywhere. That's also made that uh, abundantly clear how important that is. Um, so that's and again, as you mentioned, automation is probably the the main reason why we've lost so many manufacturing jobs, rather than you know labor costs has something to do with it. But probably a lot of it is just technology. You don't need as many people to do these things anymore. Yeah. Um, so that, that I think will have uh, a lot to do with it. And as these, you know, it's not like that's slowing down. So yeah. um, mm -hmm. as these jobs come back, there probably won't be as much of a volume of, uh, of jobs coming back because of the advancing technology. Absolutely. Be interesting to watch as those, all those things sort of come together. So moving on to our next story, uh, something unfortunately we have some familiarity with here. Um, we're talking about Stellanus brands charged with fraud. Two divisions of Solanus, which face fraud charges in a sweeping investigation into the manipulation of diesel vehicles 
in emissions testing. The automaker, which you got to remember, was established by the merger of Fiat Chrysler and the PSA Group earlier this year, said that a French court had charged its, I'm going to say these names wrong and I'll apologize right now, Pugo and Citron brands with consumer fraud related to an investigation showing that vehicles emitted 10 times the legal limit of nitrogen oxide. Pugo was reportedly ordered to pay $36 million to guarantee potential payouts in the case, while Citron would need to guarantee more than $30 million in payouts. Anna, we've talked about automakers and these cheat devices and emission scandals before. What was your takeaway from this one? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you look back over the last five, six years, like, you know, it, it really came to light with VW. But then since then, it's just been like this house of cards that has toppled. Um, you know, the submission scandal has hit nearly every major automaker in the world. And it kind of grinds my gears a little Uh-oh. bit, guys. Uh-oh. It just kind of, ugh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, just to think that like these auto companies like get to move on from this. And I know there was a lot of fallout, of course, but they're all still here. And I, I'm not saying that I think that they should have been shut down, but like they still play such a major role in yeah. like negotiating emission standards as we go forward. Right. The stuff that's going on in California. And obviously you need buy in from these companies because they design the vehicles. Um, so I get it. But it was just so blatant and everyone was wrapped up in it. And it makes you wonder what kind of safeguards will be put in place this time to prevent it from happening in the future because they're smart enough to all have individually designed their own cheat devices or however they all addressed it in a different way. They weren't really in collusion, although the effect of that feels like that because in the end we were all, you know, globally kind of screwed out of a cleaner earth, (laughs) not knowing, you know, people were buying like consumer reports had to drop like their, um, I don't remember what their, their, badge was that you know on some Audis and stuff yeah. that they were supposed to be clean diesels but you know a bunch of people had already bought them and driven them and, you know like if, if it's like a, an issue that's important to you which I know it is for a lot of people like you'd feel pretty burned by that but unfortunately all of the automakers did it so <laughs> like how do you like make a statement with your wallet <laughs> When you can't like get away from it, I don't know. I just it was a frustrating situation. I, 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 the whole thing made me really mad, and it was frustrating to see how many people were involved. Yeah, it is, and I mean, you mentioned a lot of the other um, automakers that were involved in this type of situation. I mean, Daimler was hit with one and a half billion dollar scandal last fall. Included a lot of Mercedes that made their way to the U.S. Going back, this same, basically the same company was Fiat Chrysler at the time, but in 2019, they had just under a billion dollar fine and settlements that they had to pay just dealing with cheat issues. You mentioned Nissan, GM, Toyota. They've all had different stuff. They've been able to deflect a little bit and blame some of their suppliers or, or claim ignorance or whatever. But Andy, this keeps happening. What what do you feel is driving this? Is this just you know, Anna said these these are very impactful, very um, influential companies. Is it just hubris, or is it something else? It it like you said, it has the effect <clears throat> of collusion. It has you know that's a very good way of putting it. Um, it's just you know there's there's market demand for you know cars that are better for the environment, but cars that still you know get you where you need to go. So it's uh, and there's especially in Europe, there's a lot of pressure. Um, environmentally to to clean up the auto industry yeah. um, 
and it, it was interesting in this particular case because um, this is these are French prosecutors, um, and they basically conducted this sweeping investigation, and now finally, years and years later, they're coming back with um, all these charges. Uh, Renault was charged. Uh, these two companies were charged. Fiat, um, at least a, a arm of Fiat, which is now under the same Stellantis arm or company, um, they have their, their day in court next yeah. month. So they'll probably get added to this list. So, um, And uh, as we've seen lately, Volkswagen is still in the news. Their former CEO mm-hmm. has to pay back. Yeah. So this is just, I mean, this is a decade plus now. This has been going on. These um, these particular charges, um, they deal with uh, emissions from 2009 to 2015. Wow. So, um, and I should mention that uh, the company, in their their uh, response, they said they think they were in compliance with standards for that whole time. Now, they will have their, their day in court, so we'll all uh, get to see that. But that's, yeah. that's their position. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that argument is... <laughs> That's what VW tried to do. Yeah, exactly. And if anybody has watched, if you haven't watched the Netflix Dirty Money episode on Dieselgate, I mean, it is at, it's at the same time both just enlightening and infuriating mm. because they were so brazen internally even about like, we know this is going on. We're just going to you know, sweep it under the rug. Nobody's, this will be fine. Don't worry about it. No one yeah. will know. And it was just, so that's why when these companies now say, even if it is legitimate, saying, well, we didn't know, nobody's buying it. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to go away. Um, it continues to be a big deal. I'll ask this question of both of you, and I'll get out of the way because I know how you're going to respond to it, but are some of the regulatory requirements, has it been too quick, too much, when we talk about emission standards and controlling things like this for the environment? No. Um, I think no matter what those standards are, they are going to fight them. And they're going to say it's too quick, it's too much, it's a lot of R&D dollars, um, and... You see that now with all the like challenges that are coming up with like trying to establish new emission standards, the challenges that come up with all the regulatory stuff around EVs and percentage of fleet EVs. And um, it, I get it. It's a lot to take on as a business who's like really under the regulatory thumb uh, in a very visible way um, from a federal standpoint. Uh, so they have a lot to contend with. But um you know, these companies are also making a lot of money right now. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's I, certainly, it's, sorry. so it's certainly uh, inconvenient, maybe more than, uh, maybe more than too arduous. Um, it's almost certainly from an environmental perspective, almost certainly too little and too late as far as regulations are concerned. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, it's funny. I feel like for, for Volkswagen, you know, they have some of those signs that have counting, whether it's like the national debt or like smoking casualties or something. I mean, VW could have one of those for this scandal because it just keeps growing and growing. It's approaching $35 billion for their Dieselgate scandal. And what's it cost them in terms of settlements, court fees, all that kind of Incredible. stuff. So hopefully they will learn. Moving on to another bright story. Um, Explosion rocks Illinois plant and it's been burning for a while. On Monday, June 14th, an explosion at ChemTools Northern Illinois Chemical Plant sparked fires that sent flames and plumes of black smoke high enough into the air that debris was actually raining down on the ground, and it prompted the evacuation of about 1,000 local residents. ChemTools local parent, Lubrizol Corp., said that there are about 50 employees that need to be evacuated from the facility. The plumes were large enough to be picked up on weather radar. 
There was, according to a company uh, spokesperson, there was no danger to air quality at ground level, but firefighters had stopped using water to extinguish the blaze to prevent what they termed an environmental nightmare if the runoff were to enter the nearby Rock River, which is a major tributary to the Mississippi River. State and federal EPA will be monitoring the air quality to make sure it remains safe for nearby residents. Andy, sometimes these stories are tough because from a news perspective, we want to report on it, and it's very straightforward. But we also look for a lot of analysis here, and sometimes that's difficult to draw out. But in this case, I think you had some thoughts. It's it's a little early to draw that out. Um, they're waiting until the fire is out before they start figuring out why and, and how it happened. Um, the, the pictures of this fire are uh, incredible if you've seen them. Um, and it's if you see those, it's amazing. Um, to think that um, the the dozens of employees employees that were there um, apparently there were no injuries there. There was a I think a minor injury to a firefighter um, could have been a lot worse from both a, a human cost perspective um, and also I think from from an environmental perspective at least in the short term um, they they stopped using water as you said to to keep that out of the river. Um, they took some steps um, to get uh, firefighting foam which they used, which has its own environmental issues. They took steps to keep that from getting into the groundwater. Um, so at least in the short term, there's reason for um, some optimism. Um, Long term, we'll just uh, have to wait and see. Anna? Yeah, definitely a wait and see. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the investigation as to what caused the fire. We really, as Andy said, don't know anything about that yet. Um, this is a Berkshire Hathaway company. And after this fire actually read about... Um, that there had been a fire at a Lubrizol plant in France in 2019. And in the case of that fire, it was reported that people in the surrounding community were suffering from headaches, nausea, vomiting relating to that acrid black smoke, which you can see in the photos. Uh, this plant had its own acrid black smoke. But um, in France, that area had to actually shut down, like harvesting of crops temporarily, sale of food animals. So, I mean, we should look at this evacuation in Rockton as anything but precautionary. I mean, I think that was uh, really necessary to do. This is heavy-duty inventory. I think they store things like sulfuric acid at this plant. So, um, as Andy said, you know, it could have been worse um, from a, you know, it doesn't, no loss of human life. Um, I think the environmental fallout remains to be seen. Um, We might not know that for a while. To see, to see those pictures and to think there wouldn't be some sort of fallout to the air quality mm-hmm. or the surrounding property it just seems very unlikely, let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Looking at some things that the company did put out on their site, um, <clears throat> they, they mentioned, so understandably questions have been raised about the materials burned in the fire. And this is according to the company. The materials impacting the fire are liquid ingredients and finished greases used in a variety of lubrication applications. We provided a list of these products and ingredients impacted by the fire to local authorities, and our health and safety experts have completed a thorough evaluation of the materials that blur, burned. And essentially what the company is saying, what Lubrizol is saying, is that the fire will break them down to their natural or organic state, which will ideally either diminish or negate any type of environmental impacts I agree with both of you. I think this is a wait and see. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy from a distance to say this should be minimal and it shouldn't be a problem. I think if you live there, you rightfully so have a lot of questions right now. Mm -hmm. So moving on to a little bit lighter hearted story. And I'm just glad that we could finally get our favorite company or our favorite guy. Just get him a little bit of recognition because, you know, 
He's kind of uh, kind of keeps to himself. <laughs> For once, we're going to talk yeah. about Elon Musk. Just, just you know, he's, he's just such a, a reserved individual. But the headline here: Scientists from the 1950s predicted Elon would lead humans to Mars. A 1953 book entitled "Mars Project: A Technical Tale" by German-American astronautical engineer named Wormer von Braun describes an elected official carrying the title of Elon would lead humans to Mars. Von Braun's work is a narrative that explains to readers how a trip to Mars might look in the Cold War era. The English translation of the paragraph in the book says, The Martian government was directed by ten men, the leader of whom was elected and entitled Elon. Last October, Elon Musk, who I think we're a little familiar with, was quoted as saying that humans will set foot on Mars in 2024. Andy, I'm glad that we could do something to help Elon Musk feel good about himself. He's kind of self-deprecating. He's kind of reserved. This maybe gets him out there a little bit and helps him feel good about things. Um, I uh, This will surprise no one, but he embraced that this uh, this came out about uh, <laughs> about him leading people to Mars. Um, no, this is, uh, this is a fun coincidence. Um, obviously, uh, as you said, it's not... It's not a prophecy. This is not a guy named Elon bringing people to Mars. It's a it's a title, um, but it did give me an excuse to go down the rabbit hole a little bit on the internet about uh, Werner von Braun, who is yeah. a fascinating character. And uh, also, I tried my best to figure out um, what the title Elon would have come from, and the best I could come up with was it was uh, Elon was the name of the a biblical character um, in Judges. Um, hmm. I have no idea if that's where he took his inspiration from. Or <laughs> hmm, interesting. I would love to ask him. He's not here to uh, take my questions. We'll um, work on that for next week. That's right. See if we can get him in here. That's right. Um, anyway, Werner Von Braun, um, I'd actually heard of him before, um, which is wild because I'm not usually uh, in into uh, looking into aerospace engineers in my free time, <laughs> but I'd actually heard of him. He was uh, a German um, rocket engineer invented the V2. Um, and then he was brought to America under operation paperclip, which I had never heard of. I urge you to look into operation paperclip. It's amazing. Um, they basically, uh, the U S, uh, basically secretly brought 1600 German scientists and engineers, um, over after the war to, uh, get a head start on the Russians. Um, and, uh, Von Braun's one of them. And he's basically the reason they, uh, got to the moon. As far as uh, and basically the reason they quickly overtook the Russians in the uh, space race. So uh, I love this story just as a means for me to uh, get up to speed on my Cold War history. Basically, <laughs> so. no von Braun is a very interesting guy. Yeah, definitely a great uh, great wormhole to get stuck down and, and looking at him. And what were your thoughts uh, looking at this story? Um, first of all, the fact that this guy is a rocket engineer and then he writes a book also and like his free time. Like, is this what? Life was like before Netflix where people would just, <laughs> there's nothing else to it's do. It's a renaissance, man. I guess. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Anyway, um, this story came courtesy of our newest team member, um, Nolan Bilstein. And I don't think Nolan knows that we have a podcast, so he's not listening. Surprise. <laughs> so we can say whatever we yeah. want. Um, I thought that it was a fun story. We had a commenter on our, our website um, by the handle Beer Man Rich. Great handle. Um who stated the obvious question I thought, which is how do we know Elon wasn't named after the book? Um, and if this is the case, I think that weird sci-fi naming um, maybe is genetic in the Musk family because I don't know if yeah. y- if you have been following this, right? But like 
Musk's youngest child, who was born in 21, was named, I don't know how to say it, so I wish I had, like, uh, I would hold it up to the camera, but it's, like, a few kind of characters in a row. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's, like, after, like, didn't he say it's, like, his favorite fighter jet or something weird like it's, that? Well, I think he said a few things. One thing I heard was, like, it's, like, um, the elfin word for something and then oh, um, well, of course, and then about AI. I don't know. Uh, it was, so it's, it's pronounced, apparently, X-A-12 which should make it easy for that kid um, growing oh, yeah. up. But I guess that it, was, um, it wasn't legal in California because initially they had used the number 12 in it, so they had to change it to Roman numerals. So I mean, that's the kind of, some of hard these, luck story yeah, that you get from Elon Musk is like having to go back to the freaking courthouse and <laughs> yeah, One of these letters isn't even English. Like, what are we doing here? No, I don't know. what I, Like how was that on a birth certificate? That's Big. like what's the A and the E stuck together? What is that? Some Latin. This reminds me, uh, that reminds me a little bit of like my daughter was, her brief soccer career, she played with a kid whose name was ESPN. So they call the kid Espen. Sure. That's harsh. What if, what if the kid hates sports growing up? That's true, yeah. I'm going to have to come up with a clever nickname for that instead of your Hopefully given he's a, name. He's got a real good middle name. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I also thought, what this made me think of a little bit is and I did a little bit of digging, and actually, like, Jules Verne was kind of eerie in some of his sci-fi books, like things that he predicted that actually came to be, like with a lot of the NASA programs and stuff. In terms of going to the moon and, like, the, the Nautilus, the electric submarine and stuff like that, all those things were, like, way out there in his time, but they actually came to be down the line. So I know you guys aren't as big a sci-fi fans as me, but, like, if you could think of something from, like, pop history that you've come across, the sci-fi thing, maybe it's the time-traveling, you know, DeLorean or something, like, what would you want to come to fruition? Because for me, this is an easy one. It's <laughs> definitely the lightsaber. If we could develop the lightsaber from Star Wars, that would be a game-changer on every level. Game, what game are you changing exactly with that? Every, Looking cool. Nothing. What? Yeah, what are you what doing with you it? What could you not cut down? You would How use it would to, it like, do easier? yard work and stuff? I'd use it for everything. I'd carve the turkey with a lightsaber if I could. Are you kidding? I feel like that would char it. Yeah. you got to be precise. You'd ruin the cut. I feel like people would be like, yeah, you know Jeff. Yeah. I am way out of my depth on lightsaber discussions, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Way out of my depth. Same. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't, I I can't play this game about sci-fi because I don't know anything about it. But I I do know that, like, wasn't there a time period where there was so much, like, pulp sci-fi being put out that, like, Probably everything has been predicted at this point. I mean, well, yes, I can't back that up with facts. No, it's just, it's just a guess. But <laughs> yeah, um, I'll I'll take the DeLorean. Take the DeLorean. Sure, that sounds fun. As long going, as you don't screw anything up. Going forward or back? Back. Going back. Right. Either way. Yeah. Okay. Just for the gambling aspect, if nothing else. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Make some money. Yeah. Anna is too virtuous for, for any of this type of no, stuff. No, I just, I, I can't handle time travel. It makes my brain explode. So I'm just trying to, like, wait till this is over, this discussion, and move on. Awkward silence. <laughs> okay, moving on. Let's, uh, let's finish on a high note here. This was actually your story, Anna, and it did blow up on the sites. There's a recall urged after carcinogens were found in 40 different varieties of sunscreens. A recent investigation by the online pharmacy and laboratory Valisher has identified the chemical benzene in sunscreen lotions and sprays from popular brands including Neutrogena and Banana Boat. 
Benzene has long been considered a cancer-causing contaminant and is not found in the formulas of these products. Experts believe that there is no safe amount of benzene to be applied to the skin, although the FDA does allow it in levels of two parts per million. The company has since initiated a petition urging the FDA to recall these 40 sunscreen formulas, which include a lot of household names that we just mentioned. Neutrogena is actually the brand that tops the list with the highest levels of benzene. David Light, who's the CEO of Valisure, called the benzene contamination a broad and very concerning issue in the American consumer product supply chain, saying it underscores the critical need for independent testing. Anna, you, uh, I believe you wrote this one up. Uh, what were your thoughts coming out of this one? Yeah, I mean, I agree with the CEO of Valisher. It does really impress upon that point. I mean, Neutrogena, who topped the list, as you said, with the most benzene uncovered in its formulas, is, I thought, interestingly owned by J&J, who is now currently also in the midst of a massive fallout with one of its vaccine contract manufacturers who had to discard, like, millions of doses because it was um, the, the vaccine was adulterated with a different vaccine, which seems like a pretty it's a problem. big, yeah. big miss. Yeah, right big there. swing and miss. So, I mean, Neutrogena here has stressed that this is not an ingredient in any of their sunscreens, which we already know, right? It's, that's not addressing the problem. Um, the problem is being pinned on the manufacturing process. So something is being used that's cross-contaminating these formulas, whether it's a cleaning product, a lubricant, adhesive, I don't know. But that shouldn't be that hard to figure out, right. I would think. Um, you know, even more concerning to me is that this test was done by an independent company who's also uncovered carcinogens in hand sanitizers. We ran a story last week about toxic chemicals being found in half of cosmetics that were tested. Um, I think the truth of the matter is that our approach to chemical regulation fails in many ways, and it falls short, way short, of what's being done in other countries. I don't find it reassuring that an independent lab had to do these tests. You know, Otherwise, these tests are not being done, is what that says to me. Yeah. The one that caught me here, more than the Neutrogena, was actually the banana boat, because that's what I put on my kids since they were very little. Yeah. Um, so to hear about that was very troubling. Andy, what are your thoughts on this one? Um, you, you touched on this a little bit, Anna, but just the there is an, this independent lab doing this. This should be, I mean, we have consumer protection regulators and agencies, and they're just not doing that. And I'm sure it's a matter of manpower mm-hmm. and just the sheer volume of, of products out there and chemicals and materials out there. But um, uh, we should, uh, it looks like we should demand more in some, you know, whether funding, manpower, whatever. There's Someone should be looking out for this because, you know, these are, you know, everyone uses this, right? I mean, as a extremely white person, everyone, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I have these products in my house. So yeah. it's, it's not great that the FDA had to be like, oh, we're looking into it only after a reporter asked them about it after this other lab came up with these results. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think like people talk about some of the challenges that come along with like our approach, you know, what late stage capitalism, right? But this is one of them. Honestly, like if we're going to, you know, we have 150 brands of sunscreen, like who is protecting the consumer um, to make sure that these are safe and healthy for our bodies? We need to make sure that those efforts are, you know, matching on scale to what we're offering from like a free market standpoint. Yeah, the industry is regulating itself and that's not always the uh, 
best way to go about it, mm-hmm. apparently. Well, and I, and I agree in terms of the industry regulating itself, because when you look at the name brands that are associated here, I think they are given a little bit of leeway in terms of they're not scrutinized to the same level as a new product coming onto the market. And that is a result of brand power and longevity and how long they've been there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure when the FDA, not to defend them too much, is looking at something from Neutrogena versus something from a brand new manufacturer supplier, it's a lot easier to sort of push that through as opposed to going through the same type of extensive quality controls that you typically would for a new supplier. You know, we, we saw it. I, I think the, the one thing that we can take away from a lot of the vaccines that have been coming through is how good the FDA has been in catching stuff and being very visible about that before it sure. got to the consumer. But in this case, again, you know, and, and to offer a little bit of clarity about benzene, it's a liquid. Okay, so when the when the FDA or the the federal agencies talk about allowing the fire two parts per million, they're talking about a liquid and it typically evaporates. So it's in the air sort of in in that state. It's not something that's being rubbed on your skin. So benzene is typically found in places where there's fires, okay, or there's flammable substances, um, both natural and human activity. Some of the natural stuff, and this is per the CDC's website, includes volcanoes and forest fires, so some pretty... Um, unfavorable environments. It's a natural part of crude oil, gasoline, and cigarette smoke. And again, I think the reason that they were looking at allowing some part of it is because if you're outside and not directly inhaling it, right. there is a tolerance. When you're you know, putting it on your skin and rubbing it into your skin, uh, a little bit different dynamic and obviously very concerning. So that one I don't think we're done with. Mm-mm. I think there's going to be more coming from that one. All right. Now we're moving on to the next segment we call In Case You Missed It. Some of the stories we thought were really important this week didn't maybe get as much attention, but we definitely wanted to bring some attention to it. Andy, why don't we start with you? Um, so I, this was a very uh, brief story that we ran. There weren't a lot of details out there, but um, Volvo um, announced that its new factory, in, well, relatively new factory in South Carolina is going to build um, a new SUV from uh, Polestar. Uh, Polestar is... Um, basically an electric vehicle affiliate owned by Volvo and its parent company, which is a Chinese company called Geely. Um, And they're going to start producing um, a forthcoming SUV um, right here in the U.S. And uh, that hasn't been um, unveiled yet, what the SUV is going to look like. But this, the Polestar brand, um, has basically been a, a, it's new, but it's basically been a European brand um, to date. So this is a new um, entry into the high-end EV market alongside uh, Tesla and uh, some other new ones out there. Um, so I thought that was exciting. And yeah. um, Polestar is always also interesting because they just recently, we, we uh, ran a story about them um, trying to become the first automaker to be completely emission or carbon neutral, I'm sorry, throughout the manufacturing process. So, you know, people make zero emission cars, but obviously a lot of emissions go into actually producing them. So mm-hmm. um, that uh, they want to get that. That's a high hurdle to climb, but they want to get there by the end of the decade. So that'll be uh, interesting to watch going forward. Are we going to run out of the need for SUVs? Everything new. Mm-hmm. It seems like there is definitely, it's an SUV. I mean, I know that's a conscious decision based on consumer trends. Mm-hmm. People are getting away from the, the sedan. They want an SUV, but man, like, now there's going to be fewer options when you go to get a new vehicle. I oh, mean, there already are. I yeah. mean, it's it's crazy. So, I mean, man, are we getting over-SUV'd? <laughs> I, we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are t- certainly testing us. Yeah. Cool. So my You Missed It was 
something a little bit off the beaten path, but everybody's having supply chain issues. And that includes apparently the German military. Now, their problem is not supply, it's demand. Apparently, now that they're in the closing stages, they're shutting things down in Afghanistan. And during this, during this period of time, German commanders said, no alcohol, mm-hmm. no drinking. Well, what this created is a inventory, excess supply of over 65,000 cans of beer and 340 bottles of wine. Just like sitting in the desert? Yes. And, Just Hot sitting sun. there. And nobody, they, they didn't know what to do with it. Cause, and it's funny too because it's actually in the German military reg. They can have two cans of beer a day. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know, it's like bread for German soldiers, right, which I'll is allow it. kind That's of good interesting. For you. Yeah. Um, so now they had to figure out a way to get all this booze out of the desert because, number one, they couldn't drink it. Number two, they couldn't sell it locally because alcohol is like against mm-hmm. a lot of the, the religious uh, beliefs of the folks in that area. Didn't want to dump it out because they were worried about it wrecking the environment. So they had to hire somebody to take all of this booze, The what it ended up being, um, how far was it? Almost 4,000 miles. <laughs> Back to Germany. That had to cost so much. Like anyone who's carried a case of beer down two blocks in the summer knows like how freaking heavy that is. Like, oh my God. Think, yeah. Do you think that skunked the beer? For sure. Yeah, that's probably, a long way. Probably have to mark that down a little bit at retail. <laughs> yeah, because well, it's I don't think like, they kept it cooled, right? I mean, that'd pretty, be really expensive. Pretty hot out there. Yeah. 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 So I did. it did not say whether they, I mean, hopefully they flew it, right? I mean- but if they were looking to cut costs, who knows? But you wonder, too, did all 65,000 cans and 340 bottles make it back to Somebody Munich? Take mm. a little off the top and yeah, like en route. Inspection process or something. And Especially if they're going to just dump it anyway when it got there. Because I, I can remember my buddy growing up, his dad worked at the Paps plant. And in their fridge was always all the cans where the label was on upside down yeah. and stuff like that. <gasps> so something tells me. Somebody I don't know. Yeah, like maybe like a 15-year-old or something. I don't think a grown adult wants that. I'm sure it's been sitting in the desert. I mean, if you're if you're thirsty. And he wants it. It's only I I'm not morally <laughs> opposed. Sure, I'll try one. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. We've drank worse after softball. Oh yeah. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> you're not in? I am out. Anna doesn't want to go. You're no fun. You don't want to fly to the, you know, outer space, any type of crazy vehicles. You don't want to drink skunky desert beer. What about the I wine? Mean, There's wine, right? I am not fun. That is true. <laughs> I like, <laughs> I am 100% dud. I am not fun. On that note. In case you missed it, everyone. <laughs> wait, just right, prepare yourself for some wild fun right now. <laughs> so we covered two different allegations of insider trading this week both um, related to major companies. One was a worker in Amazon's, I believe, like finance department was suspended and then stepped down after allegations that her husband had made trades of Amazon stock like a day before public filings, I think like seven quarters in a row. Um, And the duo netted gains north of a million dollars. What should have been like a blackout period for them, they just bucked that, I guess. Um, anyway, he is going to prison, uh, and she, of course, lost her job, and his presumably is lost, I'm assuming, and uh, there's probably some restitution there. <laughs> there's just like, it was not good. Yeah. Um, and then in the other story, uh, Eastman Kodak executives are being forced to testify after the CEO and general counsel bought stock ahead of an announcement that Kodak had been ordered, I believe, like a pandemic-related loan um, that caused their 
their stock to spike up, which their stock's been having some trouble <laughs> because it's Kodak. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the company released a statement along the lines of, this was expected, it's a matter of course, we're ready for it. And the attorney general, in contrast, said, quote, the facts will be exposed before the American people and that corporate executives don't get to play by their own rules. So she feels, I think, that they maybe broke some rules here. Uh, some great taglines for the movie that's going to be made about this. Yeah. You can't play by your own rules. N- not you. You think you're doing Eastman Kodak. Eastman Kodak executive team. You think you're so cool. Well, that story, guess what? That contract was out for about an hour before everyone's like, mm, that doesn't look right. I know. Right away. <laughs> I remember that too. Right yeah. away. People were like, hey. And which I think leads me to my point, which is, why are people still doing this? Like, it's very easy to catch. I don't know who's like, whoever is in charge of like hunting these down is obviously very good at it. Um, I I don't know. I just like the, the stock market's doing great. Like, just why you got to be, try to be rich you're all the, the time. C- I know you're the like, CEO of Eastman Kodak, but yeah. you're still the CEO of a company. Like, uh, just maybe tr- hang in there. Yeah, yeah, like I'm sure, I didn't look up what this guy makes in a year, but I'm sure he's doing fine. Okay. I don't know. I just like how is it worth it? Just, just stop. You don't need all that extra stuff. Just be better. Be better. Spend some time with your family. The Amazon guy. Have a nice guy, dinner. I, I no, you stop right. having so much fun. The Amazon guy. He went to to prison so his wife wouldn't. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that so? That's that was part of his deal. That's was a fun. That, yeah. A little bit of uh, a noble angle. Think I be guess. Some strain on the marriage there. I mean, on his part. What a sad story, though. Like, yeah. could you imagine? I don't know. Like. If, their well, family members must just be like, what? why, you know? Yeah. Well, here's the thing, and I think they ended up paying back in restitution like a million more than they ended up getting for like the stock. And what caught me with that one is it's Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's not like some niche little tech company over here in the corner that mm-hmm. nobody's going to be paying attention to. Right. When somebody starts making a million dollars in 18 months off of Amazon stock, you're going to draw a little scrutiny. People are going to know what you're up to there. Right, exactly. So. I don't know. The the Yeah, the person who prosecuted them too said, like, these two people had really nice paying tech jobs. Like, this was just pure yeah. unbridled greed, and yeah. I have to agree. It just, Trade it all for just a little bit more. I know. It's just too sad. Sorry uh, to be a downer and end the podcast. That <laughs> it's way. been a real roller coaster this yeah, week. it kind of has. I told you coming yeah. in. We were going to go up and down. Yep. Anna brought us down. Down. Okay. Um, <laughs> Little mom knowledge there. <laughs> I can't think of anything happy to end with either. Okay, we'll just wrap it up. No. Um, yep. Final thoughts. One thing I've got to say is the big league chew streak has come to an end. Oh no! Already. Little, we uh, we got to three and zero with the big league chew use, but uh, Wednesday night we dropped a close one. So I'm caught then because I. Selfishly, I'm hitting the ball pretty well. Mm-hmm. So I think I might just keep with the big league chew okay. for my own well-being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're coming up on the trade deadline. Maybe I can work a deal, get to a contender. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see where that goes. I'm going to continue with the big league chew. That's my final thought for the podcast in the week. Andy? Um, I've resolved to uh, watch Dr. Strangelove after going down the Warner Von Braun oh. wormhole because mm-hmm. that's uh, loosely based on him, I think. Um I've seen bits and pieces and probably absorbed most of that movie just from being aware of pop culture for the past 40 years. Mm-hmm. But uh, I should probably sit down and actually watch it. So that's my 
So that's my goal. To, uh, to fight off the humidity that we're going to be dealing with this weekend. That's right. we complain about the weather because that's just what we do in the Midwest. I that's think. right. Yeah. Never happy. Good deal. Anna, your happy closing thought? I have Exciting? One. Wild? Yeah, I do. Um, I just want you all to know that we finally, like uh, – like called it and just bought the 100 pack of uh, freeze pops. And I know you just, you have to, I mean, like you can't be going piecemeal with that, with a little net bag and just, no. So that's happening. And, um, and then the blow up pool, people are having a good time. Yeah. Do they fight over the blue, the blue icy pops? Um, no, they fight over every other thing on earth, but, well, but not that. No. The blue. Cause there's a hundred of them. So you just, yeah, everyone's one. got, they can just get the in blue, there. which isn't a color or a flavor. It's yeah. just blue. Um, yeah, my brother and I, it got, you know, got a little violent. We'll see Go what on. happens when we get to the bottom of the box. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In addition to staying cool, enjoying your desserts and movies, we're going to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And again, if you got any comments or feedback for us, feel free to drop us a line at Anna, Andy, or Jeff at IEN.com. Put email in the pod, email the podcast in the subject line. We would also request that you check out the websites. Look at those daily and now some of our weekly newsletters that we're sending out if you're looking at staying top of some of the biggest stories in the industrial sector. For Anna and Andy and David, we'll be look forward to having you back next week. I'm Jeff Ranke. This has been the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.